And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is, in fact, a great day because it's election day. Finally, 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 the Georgia runoff, the runoff between incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock, who, according to many analyses, is favored to win. But no one is counting out Herschel Walker, who is the Republican nominee. He has been embattled, he has been plucky, he has been fighting back, and there is a secret in the previous election returns that a number of analysts say this is an indication of why Walker, not not Warnock, but Walker will ultimately win. 1-800-955-1776. We'll be talking uh, to Arthur Herman of uh, Hudson Institute a little bit later. He uh, is uh, actually one of those people who has looked at the allergy that Republicans seem to have uh, for early voting and uh, talks about why basically this is an opportunity for Republicans and conservatives, not some kind of uh, drag on uh, what is going on. This is, uh, this is one of those things that uh, is very, very directly related to uh, how, who wins and who doesn't win and who will have full control of the Senate or will we have a continued even divide in the Senate as we have for um, most of the uh, last uh, three years. Um, meanwhile, two million people have already voted in the Georgia runoff. Uh, President Biden is looking at another hotbed for election complaints and uh, claims of fraud and stealing and rigging. He's in Arizona, uh, but having nothing to do with uh, uh, Carrie Lake and her insistence on uh, trying to uh, continue to legally challenge the election in Arizona that she lost by 17,000. We'll take a look at that. Uh, she, um, uh, President Biden is also visiting a Taiwanese-owned chip manufacturing facility to celebrate efforts to fix the supply chain for the key resource. It's also a way of expressing more solidarity, which actually the administration has tried to do on um, several occasions with Taiwan, which is increasingly threatened by some internal divisions about standing up to uh, China, which of course claims Taiwan as part of its own sovereign territory. The House January 6th Committee, remember them? Uh, they are meeting tonight virtually, not uh, all together, but to try to decide an issue of criminal referrals. Uh, Chair Chairman Benny Thompson of Mississippi uh, actually has something to say about that. Uh, who would they criminally refer? Well, <laughs> it's pretty obvious, isn't it? And this is not about his comments recently about the Constitution, which have been so controversial. Uh, we will get to those comments by President Trump, who may have a criminal referral. One thing that is very clear is that because of the clock and the calendar and because the time is running out for the January 6th Select Committee, uh, President Trump is going to be able to avoid any kind of testimony before that committee. Meanwhile, uh, there is a very big determination last night on cable news. There was a very angry 
uh, denunciations by Jim Jordan of the FBI and blaming the FBI for the Hunter Biden cover-up. And this apparently will be a major focus for Democrats, uh, uh, for Republicans, pardon me, against the Democrats when they take over the House uh, in a couple of weeks. There is also another surprise focus sort of coming back from I thought it was all settled and finished. It's a, um, a drive by uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's going to be the speaker, to uh, basically drop the military mandate for getting vaccinated, for getting vaccinated against COVID, and saying that unless they drop that mandate, the Republicans may block the $800 billion in funding for the Defense Department. Really? The uh, Justice Department is issuing subpoenas, and this is Jack Smith, the new special prosecutor for Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin officials for Trump communications. Uh, Twelve jurors will decide whether Donald Trump's company is guilty of felonies related to a tax fraud that its executives engaged in. They began deliberating shortly before noon Monday and will continue today. Uh, this is not the end of the world for President Trump because it's a uh, case not against him personally, but against his company. Would he prefer that his company not be found uh, guilty of tax fraud? Of course he would. But uh, the the real problem here, and it's something the judge has even spoken about to the jury, and I think one of the things that will probably lead to less than a complete sweeping verdict against Donald Trump one of the problems here is that clearly the beneficiary of this tax fraud was not as much the uh, company as uh, as it uh, was not so much the the company as it was the executive Alan Weisselberg who basically organized the tax fraud and benefited from it we will give you the very latest on that as well and then there are Moscow's accusations that Ukrainian drones struck two air bases deep inside Russia and uh, that has once again raised profound and very scary questions about escalation and uh, intensification of the ongoing tragedy of the war in Europe a war that that frankly I don't think the West or the United States can afford to lose. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. If uh, it sounds like uh, I am uh, distant, abnormal today, more abnormal than usual, uh, it is because I am broadcasting from Maui. I know, poor baby. No, I'm, we're delighted to be here. We're part of a, an ongoing uh, Jewish tour of three different Hawaiian islands and it's a terrific occasion and my wife is uh, enjoying it while I'm enjoying having the opportunity <laughs> of talking to you with the uh, connections being uh, established here. So if you hear some tweets of birds that has nothing to do with Twitter or protecting evidence at Twitter that uh, should have been released a long time ago, none of that. It uh, has to do with a not tremendously sunny but certainly not snowy or cold or dreary day uh, here in uh, the island of Maui um, okay first of all the the one uh, terrific uh, secret that I think uh, gives an indication of why it is uh, Herschel Walker could actually shock the world 
uh, by winning the election has to do with our old friends at what I used to call on this show the Losertarian Party. Uh, and the reason for that kind of contempt was not because I disagree with their policy positions. I think some of their policy positions are outstanding and are inherently conservative and pro-small government and good for them. But basically, because the party exists to lose, it, it, it doesn't win. Uh, there are no major libertarian party candidates who have really ever won anything. And yet, they had a very strong candidate in Georgia in the, uh, in the general election. And that candidate's performance uh, really does give some hope for uh, the uh, uh, Herschel Walker campaign. How does that work? Because, of course, this is a runoff. There are only two candidates whose votes count. You could even try to write in a libertarian candidate. Your votes wouldn't count. This goes to either Herschel Warnock or Raphael, Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker. So what does it mean that the libertarian candidate actually in the previous election got 80,000 votes? We'll take a look at that and much more, also speaking about the need for Republicans to come to terms with early voting. That and more on The Medved Show. Your outlet for outrage. Outrage. And on the Michael Medved show, the eyes of the whole nation, to a surprising extent, the eyes of the whole world are on a runoff election in Georgia. Uh, this is not a double runoff election the way it was last time uh, for some uh, in 2020. Uh, some uh, uh, it's going to be three years ago sometime soon, but uh, 2020. You had two uh, races, both of which were very close, and the Democrats won both, and that was what gave them their 50-50 control of the U.S. Senate. And uh, the, the basis for the two elections on the same ballot was because Johnny Isaacson, who was a mainstream conservative and a very good guy, retired from the Senate early, two years early, because he had ill health. And so the race was there to, uh, to try to uh, replace uh, Johnny Isaacson. But uh, obviously that was a race that was won by Raphael Warnock, and uh, he is now trying to win a term uh, all his own. And uh, that's uh, one of the things that is uh, uh, going on. And <laughs> in addition to a ringing phone, which I can't stand. Um, but uh, that's part of uh, what is happening in the uh, Georgia uh, runoff today. The uh, Hill uh, website has a, uh, a piece on the online betting markets, which are heavily favoring the incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock over Republican Herschel Walker, the uh, Democrats' chances of winning the runoff, according to the people who are actually betting on this, uh, and I hope you're not, uh, were at 89.5% to Walker's 10.5% as of uh, Sunday afternoon. That, according to the tracker, election betting odds, which uh, culls 
odds from uh, other popular betting markets. There's a piece in the New York Times which I think is very important perspective on why I wouldn't take the, uh, the betting odds quite uh, as seriously, despite the fact that they're very one-sided. Does that mean that if you asked, if asked, well, do I think it's more likely that Raphael Warnock wins? I think it's probably a bit more likely. After all, he's the incumbent, and that's an advantage. But uh, Blake Hounsell in uh, the New York Times writes, if there's one thing American politics keeps teaching us, it's to be humble about predicting what voters will do. With that in mind, here are two basic ways to look at the Georgia runoff uh, today. And uh, one is that um, the uh, runoff is going to be an easy victory for, uh, for uh, Warnock. And the other, that uh, there are the pieces in place to allow uh, a, a big Herschel Walker surprise. Uh, Democrats are outspending Republicans heavily down the stretch, writes Hounschel in the New York Times. Since November 9th, they've spent more than double what Republicans have spent on the runoff on digital and television advertising, nearly $53 million versus a little over $24 million, according to Ad Impact, a media tracking firm. The two parties were much closer to parity in the three months before Election Day, though Democrats had a slight edge in spending, and of course on Election Day itself, the Democrats were ahead, but by less than 1%. It was a 38,000 vote margin. Mr. Warnock finished ahead of Mr. Walker in the general election by fewer than 40,000 votes, the Times writes. The Libertarian candidate, whose name was Chase Oliver, uh, received more than 81,000 votes. In other words, twice as many as the margin uh, that, that went out and, and voted for, uh, for Warnock. Uh, and he is not on the ballot this time. He can't be on the ballot because it's a runoff. It's only two candidates. Uh, Mr. Oliver, that's the Libertarian candidate, earned about 50,000 more votes than all the other Libertarian candidates did in the uh, race for governor uh, or other statewide races where there were libertarian candidates. They, they did not get 81,000 votes, but this guy Chase Oliver did. And what he's arguing is that this suggests that there, there was a sponge-like effect for Mr. Oliver, the libertarian candidate, for conservatives who could not stomach Mr. Walker. If only 45% of Mr. Oliver's supporters vote for the Republican this time, Mr. Warnock's margin on November 8th will be completely erased. In other words, Warnock won by 40,000 votes, but there were 80,000 votes that went to this libertarian guy. Now, is it possible that some of the libertarian people will just not vote this time? Sure. Is it possible that some of them could vote for Democrats? Sure. But on most issues which have to do with uh, big government, uh, the uh, Libertarian Party means you're pretty committed and you're not going to like the agenda of Bo Joe Biden. Uh, Mr. Walker's indictment of Mr. Warnock was always a simple one. He's another vote for President Biden's agenda, writes uh, Hounsell in the Times. And Mr. Biden, with an approval rating in the 30s or very low 40s, is about as popular in Georgia as the Florida Gators. In other words, not at all. So Mr. Warnock was careful during his uh, lone debate with Mr. Walker not to associate himself 
too closely um, with Biden. Uh, Mr. Kemp, that's the governor, um, Republican Brian Kemp, is leaning heavily on an anti-Biden message as he stumps for Mr. Walker. Herschel Walker will vote for Georgia, not be another rubber stamp for Joe Biden, the governor says in one ad. One recent poll commissioned by AARP, that's the American Association of Retired People, that concentrates on oldsters, uh, within, uh, showed that Mr. Warnock, with a narrow lead, uh, just a 51% to 47% within the margin of error. Although Mr. Warnock was up by 24 points among voters 18 to 49 years old, he was behind by 9 points among voters 50 and older. The poll assumes that those older voters will make up 62% of the electorate in the runoff. But that's just an assumption. In other words, if it's true that older people um, are going to be much more likely to vote than younger people when it comes to this runoff, that's the essence of, uh, of, of Herschel Walker's chance to pull a gigantic uh, uh, upset. Turnout among the black voters whom Mr. Warnock needs to win is no guarantee either. As Nate Cohen, also a writer for The Times, notes in his newsletter, the data so far suggests that the black share of the electorate sank to its lowest level since 2006. That's nationwide, including in Georgia, which is a very interesting point, a very important point to make, is that uh, when people talk about the fact that uh, President uh, Trump actually did better in the election with black people than he had in the past, part of it is because there was a lower black turnout and uh, of the people who decided to come and, and vote there were uh, more Republicans than in the past voting uh, for, for among black people we're going to be talking to Arthur Herman of Hudson Institute who says wait a minute wait a minute Republicans have to come to terms with early voting it could be the key to victory in 2024 why we'll get to that coming up on the MedMed show Well, this is an educational song. I mean, teaching uh, young people how to spell jingle while wishing everybody uh, just a thoroughly wonderful holiday season. I will tell you, it's, it's really <laughs> very strange to, uh, uh, to be staying in Hawaii for a couple of days and seeing, uh, well, hotel lobbies and things of that nature with all kinds of snowy Santa Claus uh, tributes. There, there's also a, uh, a, a fairly famous sand sculpture that they do of Santa Claus on the beach at Waikiki, but he's dressed more appropriately for that warm weather. Somebody who's always uh, dressed appropriately for Viking weather is uh, Arthur Herman. We'll talk about his new book, The Viking Heart, just released in paperback a little bit later. But first of all, uh, Arthur, you, you write something very relevant to the Georgia primary and uh, very relevant to the Georgia runoff, pardon me, what is going on today. He writes, so you write in the Wall Street Journal, the GOP's real problem in the election of 2022 wasn't its message or the messengers. It was a more basic failure, not understanding or accepting how Americans today participate in elections. That's a 
pretty basic problem. What is different today about the way that people participate in elections? Hey, Michael. Um, I hope you're enjoying yourself at, at the, this season in Hawaii. It sounds like you're dealing with the, with the uh, cognitive dissonance uh, pretty well. Uh, for so far. scenes in, uh, in, 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 in Hawaii. Um, it's a big country. Here's what's happening is, is that, uh, you know, Americans have for the last three or four election cycles have been taking full advantage of the fact that uh, they're allowed to vote on days other than Election Day and that they're able to uh, vote in ways that are different from having to show up at a polling place um, and to uh, stand in a booth and uh, mark the card or push the button or do the other kinds of things that we've associated with the election day rituals. And the Democrats, the, the point of my piece in the Wall Street Journal is Democrats have adjusted this very nicely, and they have found ways in which to deliver with uh, early voting, which now is something that's permitted and allowed in about 46 out of 50 states. Um, and they've even adjusted to... The fact that people are in many states not uh, not required to drop off their ballots themselves, but can have somebody drop off the ballot uh, by proxy. And also with mail-in balloting, which some states like Nevada and Oregon have now become the primary means in which uh, they participate. Democrats have adjusted. They found a way to make that an essential part of their ground game. Republicans haven't, and they're paying for it. Um, they paid for it in 2020, and they paid for it in 22, 22, in my opinion. And they're going to face a similar disappointment in 2024 if they don't realize that how they how they think about getting the vote out has got to be more than just the la you know building up to the last couple of days before uh, and the turnout on election day. Yeah, what's fascinating about your piece is you have some of the numbers, and I think it's very tough to argue with the statistics, that uh, a lot of people assume that this uh, Democratic preference for early voting and a Republican preference for all the votes on Election Day, that that's a, uh, an ancient division that is based on some kind of very uh, deep... Uh, differentiation between liberals and conservatives but it used to be that uh, Republicans would compete very well in terms of early voting what changed yeah that is interesting isn't it um, and uh, what you saw was the percentage according to the polls the percentage of people this is through Gallup people who percentage of people who voted early um, used to be the Republicans who uh, who had the lead in that regard and I think what has happened is is that the Republicans uh, got it into their head. Um, and in some ways, based on circumstantial evidence, Michael, we have to be clear about this, that the whole process of early voting and mail-in voting was one that was uh, fraught with uh, risk, risk of phony ballots, risk of ballots disappearing. The experience, I think, in the 2000 election really sort of haunted Republicans that that unless you had, you know, a, a solid and uh, un, unexceptionable turnout and with ballots um, on election day, that there was some kind of hanky-panky going on. So that's where you needed to focus your attention, and that's what you could win. And in some cases, of course, they have. They have had, you know, enormous success with turnout. But uh, in the process, they've been caught by surprise by the Democrats who have 
stuck to the ability to round up those votes, get those early votes out there, um, do the ballot harvesting, as it's called, for picking up ballots and delivering them uh, to uh, to polling stations in ways that they haven't been cut out. The point of my piece, Michael, was for Republicans, and, and I want to say this, that the question of the message and the messenger are still important, right? I mean, we, I think we've seen that in 2022 with the candidates that were kind of handpicked by Donald Trump didn't do very well. There was a pattern there, and that's something Republicans need to pay attention to now and coming up to 2024. But not saying it's unimportant, but you have to also think about this the way a general thinks about winning a battle. And you have to think strategically. And you don't win battles by giving a large part of the battlefield terrain to your opponent, letting them hold the high ground while you figure you're just going to you know, keep going in the same old way and somehow overcome them. You know, it reminds me of those generals in the 1930s who discounted uh, the effect of tanks and armored cars on the battlefield. All you need was a good you know, strong cavalry charge there on election day, and all will be well. Well, it's not working. It's time to adjust the strategy, as well as think about who the message and the messenger, the candidates that you pick. Well, you make a point about how Republicans are very attached to this old model of uh, uh, waiting until an election takes place, until you've heard the final debate and you've heard the last-minute appeals and then people going out and voting and, and they not acknowledging the fact that uh, when the campaign reaches its so-called crucial final stages in many cases because of early voting it's already decided and that's not a good thing because it means that people are not voting really on the same candidates they're voting on a, a, a candidate in a different stage of development if you will and especially yeah, in a different stage of the messaging, you know. And yes, we saw that right. With the Pennsylvania campaign. We saw that with the Pennsylvania campaign, where uh, Oz was in the early stages of that campaign, presented as being basically, you know, an unserious candidate, a creature of Donald Trump, and people went to the polls and and uh, and and cast their vote on that basis, not on the question of is Fetterman, this fellow Fetterman, really up to the job? Is he capable of? uttering complete sentences, let alone serving in the U.S. Senate. That only came out, that issue came out later, uh, at, around the debate time, but by then the, the votes were already in, if not, if not counted. Okay, so, but isn't that, this is not just a strategic question, this is a substantive question. Uh, is it good for America that we should have such a differentiation? and? especially with uh, uh, all of the, um, uh, the the distinctions we have of uh, Republicans tending to win on Election Day and Democrats winning in the uh, days uh, before for the early voting. We're talking with Arthur Herman, his new book, uh, The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World. Uh, is that true today with uh, Scandinavians and particularly with their newly mobilize support of Finland and Sweden uh, together with the other Scandinavian countries for NATO and for Ukraine. We'll be right back with Arthur Herman of the Hudson Institute. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1770.
On the Michael Medved Show, a few minutes more with uh, Arthur Herman. Arthur Herman is a senior fellow at the uh, Hudson Institute. He is head of the Quantum Alliance Initiative at Hudson Institute. Uh, Arthur, to switch gears for just a moment to something else in which you are very much an uh, expert, there is a great deal of concern right now um, with the weapons flow to Ukraine and uh, reports that uh, the United States has applied very uh, a, a very strict limitations on the use of weapons that we are providing or even the uh, way that they are equipped to function uh, so that uh, as not to provoke some kind of uh, angry Russian response. Do you think that regarding the HIMARS and the drones and everything else that we are providing for Ukraine so that they can actually win the war, that it is the right thing to put these limitations on how they use the weaponry? No, I think it's a very foolish policy. And what, what are we worried about? That Putin is going to invade another country as a result of this or turn to nuclear weapons? No, I don't think that's the case. We've got the Ukrainians have Putin uh, on the defensive. Uh, you have a Russian army, which by all reports is in a very low state of morale um, and which is uh, giving ground every time the Ukrainians push on them, uh, allowing them to use the weapons that we've provided the way they, not we, see fit on the battlefield it only makes sense under these circumstances. What I'm worried about, Michael, is is that the is that the strategy that the White House, if there is a strategy there, and I think there might be, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's never too, it's, it's, never, it's never a good idea to assume there is, it is an overall approach to what, to what policy decisions and who's making those decisions. But is, is it to simply allow this process to, and the bloodbath to continue and just draw on and draw on? And I think by, by allowing the Ukrainians to use the weapons as they see fit, especially the more advanced weapons that they've got and the art and the artillery that they have part because a lot of this war is now boiled down to an artillery duel between uh, the Russian army uh, and the Ukrainian forces um, that we're going to make it uh, easier for uh, for Ukraine to regain the territory that they've lost which means that their war that their objectives will have been achieved and the more that the Russian will to continue this fight is going to abate. Um, I think that the worry that somehow <laughs> if um, if these weapons are allowed to be used for their longer range, for example, it might reach Russian territory, that this will somehow trigger a nuclear response from Vladimir Putin and his uh, and his henchmen, I think is, is way exaggerated, particularly if we make it clear that any kind of nuclear response uh, will have a uh, severe retaliation on our part as the other uh, major nuclear power in this in this conflict. So I think it's a I I think in this in so many ways the Biden administration has mishandled this Ukraine war, uh, and it's just one more feature of an administration which really is um, unable to find a coherent way in which to act either with Russia or with China but hopes the problems will go away if they just sit and do nothing. What about the, those conservatives and they're increasingly vocal and outspoken 
who say that the United States is putting Volodymyr Zelensky in charge of U.S. foreign policy, that uh, we shouldn't allow Zelensky to stop open negotiations with uh, Putin to bring a quick end to the war. Now, this comes at a time when I was just reading speculation by Lance Morrow, who's your fellow contributor to the Wall Street Journal, that uh, Zelensky is very likely to be Time Magazine's person of the year this year. I mean, who else? It, it's, it's not going to be Joe Biden, and it's not going to be Vladimir Putin, uh, and it's not going to be uh, uh, Kanye West, it's not going to be Ye. <laughs> so, uh, uh, first of all, do you think it's appropriate to honor uh, Zelensky as the man of the year? And, and secondly, what about that claim that we are giving uh, this uh, foreigner, uh, president of a medium-sized country, control over U.S. foreign policy? Oh, I, I think Zelensky has almost certainly earned that slot, the man of the year. He really has emerged as a kind of the Winston Churchill. Um, for his uh, for his countrymen, and in this conflict in which everybody remember, at the beginning back in February when this when the war broke out, the uh, the everybody assumed that it was going to be a, a Russian rollover. Uh, I assumed that. I thought that it would be over in a matter of weeks, uh, and in, and instead, uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian people have defied every conventional opinion, every conventional expectation and have not only stood up to the threat in the, the most serious threat Ukraine has faced since the Soviet-induced uh, Great Famine, but, but then, at the same time, I mean, really to threaten the, the very existence of the nation, um, but have managed to reverse the controls and are now basically driving the Russians out and have put the Russians on, in, in, in retreat. Uh, yeah, I think Zelensky it deserves that deserves that accolade, deserves the comparison with Churchill. Um, now, and on the so question how, about how, American how? foreign but as a question of American foreign policy, I don't really sure how someone maintaining a war uh, and sapping uh, Russia's military and strategic strength without a single American boot having to go on the ground constitutes a loss for our foreign policy. I'm just not sure how that how that adds up. I think what we've got I think what we have is, and I call them the Little America wing of the Republican Party right now. That, uh, and, it, and it's reminiscent, isn't it, Michael, of the yeah. of the 1930s and of the, the the isolationism feelings that swept over conservative circles um, during during that period of time. It was based on the bitterness for the the disillusion that followed the First World War, and this obviously springs from the disillusion that follows. Uh, the, the Iraq and, and Afghanistan, the so-called you know endless wars, are there. I understand the frustration and the feeling that that uh, that any any military conflict like this will involve a degree of mission creep that will somehow suck the United States in and put the United States in danger. I just don't see well, it I, happening here in the no, Ukraine I, conflict. I don't see how that how that scenario emerges. Well, there's actually something to be gained very directly on this point for people reading your outstanding book, which, as you know, I enjoyed, and it's hardcover edition. It's now out in paperback. It's called The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World. And 
when you talk about a Viking heart, it's not just uh, wild, crazy, sadistic warriors. It is um, uh, uh, people in intrepid, uh, committed to uh, higher goals, very often. And today it's, it's remarkable that the Scandinavian countries that were um, not uh, among the, the most outspoken and clear opponents of the evil empire of the old Soviet Union that now they seem to be uh, extremely strong in supporting NATO and supporting Ukraine, no? Yeah, I think that's really true. And and like the rest of NATO, I mean, this is one of the things that this Ukraine war has, has brought about, is that suddenly NATO has acquired a backbone and is, and is working to support a conflict, even countries like Germany shipping arms, even countries like Sweden and Norway stepping up uh, to support the Ukrainian effort, and with Sweden and Finland now joining NATO, as you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, uh, that's also a major step. It opens the, a, a potential second front on Putin if his uh, imperialist ambitions now extend up towards the Baltic region uh, and towards uh, and towards other parts of Europe. Here, uh, you know, the Finns—they know what it's like dealing with the Russians. They fought wars. So did the Swedes. So having them as part of full members of NATO, I think, is an enormous boon. And it goes to show that the image that we often have of Scandinavian countries is a bunch of welfare state loafers uh, <laughs> who are interested in interested in in uh, you know designing uh, uh, designing uh, flatware and uh, and and blonde furniture, furniture. Blonde, right. blonde wood furniture, uh, and that uh, have you know are sort of a uh, naturally pacifist they aren't that the people will get a much much better countries. they will get a much better perspective by reading uh in your book about the viking heart it's posted at the website at michaelmedved.com the subtitle how scandinavians conquered the world uh arthur appreciate uh, your perspective always and the conversation on behalf of this greatest nation on god's green earth